Can we turn to James in uh, James chapter 2? And reading from verse 1. I'm reading from the Revised Standard Version. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonoured the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality and are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's the section we're going to look at today. But just to briefly recap uh, from what I said last week, which uh, is in this book, this letter, of course, are all linked, is that um, the importance of seeing the implanted word that is in our hearts, the implanted word that's in our soul, Mm -hmm. and recognising that we talked about last week that it's a divine plantation and it's one that needs to take root. So therefore, the implanting in our soul is for so that our soul might have life, so that our soul might not die. And we talked about this as being our Christian living. This is not to do with our salvation. Obviously, when we are saved, we are saved for eternity. We are talking about our life, our discipleship, our Christian life. And the implanted word is the means that God has given us uh, to enable us to understand the things of God, the deep things of God, the things that are hidden from the, those who are unsaved, those who are not alive to God. <clears throat> so this implanting is something that needs to take root We talked also about the need for us, as James says, about looking in a mirror. And he was chastising those who look in the mirror and then go away and forget what they've seen. And what I was suggesting there was that uh, the implication is that we should see ourselves as we are. 
and not forget where we came from. Not forget that we are a sinful people. And not forget that where we've been lifted out of in our salvation, we've been made alive. But we need to be able to compare. And I suggested um, that that was why the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was put in the Garden of Eden. Because how can you know good if you don't see evil? And in order for you to understand good, you need to understand evil. The Lord Jesus Christ, when he was here, was confronted with evil all around him, and it didn't contaminate him. But it's clear that in order to understand it, we need to see in the mirror, we need to see our sin. Not something that you dwell on, not something that you get morose about or cause a heavy weight in us, but it's something to recognise that that's where I came from, that's what God abhors. And then it helps us then to move out of that. It also helps us comparing ourselves with Christ and the perfect man. And then being able to see in the mirror this sinful David King. Look at you. Look at what you're doing. Look at your life. Compare it with Christ and move up. And go forward and try and elevate yourselves towards the person of Christ. And then we talked also about the law of liberty and the, the fact that it seems like a, a contrast. We hate law. We hate being told what to do. It's so restrictive. We want to be able to do what we like. So how can you have a law of liberty? Liberty seems to imply you're free. Well, the perfect law is called the law of liberty. And that is the law of God. And it was seen in the perfection of Christ, in the actions of Christ. And the way he lived his life was as the law of liberty. That he did totally the will of his father. And the perfection, not a foot wrong, never did anything wrong. He did everything according to his will. And that's a perfect law. That's the law of Christ that we need to look at as a law of liberty. So when we go on to chapter 2 what James is now taking us on to is how we look at our works <clears throat> he's asking for works which should flow from us it's from a knowledge of God in our souls and I think this is quite a, an interesting section here because what he's wanting us to consider is what motivates you in your works. Um, maybe it's something we could discuss later on tonight about the different types of works there are, but the Lord God of heaven doesn't need to know or doesn't need to see our works because he knows the heart. He knows it's in your heart. He knows what's your motivation. The works are for us, each other. How do we know a Christian? How do we know somebody who is in Christ, who loves the Lord Jesus Christ, unless we see the way they live? God doesn't need that. <clears throat> but it's like, by their works shall you know them, is that we know Christians by the way they live, by their actions, 
the way they treat one another, the way we treat one another. People should be able to see in our works something that comes from the soul. <coughs> we shouldn't be doing works because it's a, a rule. You often get a lot of people that make comments like, uh, are we allowed to do this? Or are we allowed to do that? Is it all, oh, is it all right? Or uh, will overseers come down on us if we, if we do that? The, the, the question really needs to be asked, well, what is it that God wants? It's to look in to the implanted word that's in your soul and ask yourself, is your soul living as a Christian? Or is it dead? And are your works being motivated for the right reasons? We read in, uh, in James, or David read earlier in James, in chapter, <coughs> verses 17 and 18, about the father of lights. I read just a few minutes ago about the Lord Jesus Christ as being his, it being his faith and that him being the Lord of glory or a glorious Lord. And then when you, if you go on, and this will be something that we'll be dealing with later in chapter four, that it talks about the spirit, the spirit of God indwelling us. You get the picture of the triune Godhead here of the father of lights and again it's something that David spoke about was that we should be able to discern what comes from God and what is fleshly and what comes from God is perfect what comes from God is light hence the title the father of lights that he is able to enlighten us through his get the giving of the hand of God and we should need to be able to discern that when we get things when we um, receive that we know where it's come from and we are able to um, respond accordingly I mean even in practical things um, just off the top of my head you'd think you can get a brand new car and it's you've received it who have you received it from? Is it from God or is it a fleshly lust? Well, that's something that you can quite easily work out for yourself because if you're looking to have this car so that you can laud it over your fellow neighbours and fellow saints, if you're trying to look as if you are bigger and better and, uh, than everybody else, then that is clearly fleshly and it's lust. But if you're wanting a car because you need to get from A to B, um, it's been given you uh, in, in such a way that so that you can use it for the glory of God and uh, ferry people about. You might need it to get to do the work of the Lord. You can see how things like that can easily be seen to be of the hand of the Lord. But there's a balance. And it's something that we just need to be constantly aware of in every aspect of our life. That what comes, what is fleshly, is something that is just needs feeding. Because the things of this world that we lust after 
are just things that are only for a time and then you want more. And then they're only for a time and then you want more. And it's the way this world works and it's marketing is designed to feed on the lusts, our lusts. That you lust after more and more and more. And no sooner have you got the best or the fastest or the most expensive or the most beautiful, something else will come out that is bigger, better, faster, whatever. And that's now what you want. That is not of God. And so we as Christians have to be very careful how we discern that. The, in verse 1, when we read about uh, what James said about uh, encouraging us not to hold your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the glorious Lord, don't hold it with an attitude of personal favoritism. But it's that holding the faith. That's the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, when we're thinking about the implanted word, we're now thinking about holding the faith of Christ and holding the faith of the glorious Lord, of the Lord of glory. Sometimes these words, they play out, uh, when you read the, the Greek word uh, or words and see how it's been translated in the different versions, it can sometimes appear different. Does a glorious Lord mean the same thing as a Lord of glory? Um, maybe you think that doesn't matter. Uh, and some of the people who have interpreted scripture have felt it doesn't matter. Um, I think on the face of it, you can say, well, maybe it doesn't. But I think for students of the word, people who want to get into the meaning of it and want to meditate on it, it can mean something different. The Lord of glory means something more to me than a glorious Lord. I don't know whether it does to you, but uh, to me, the Lord of glory seems a much higher exalted title where he is taking um, responsibility, ownership of the fact that he is glory and not just living a life that's glorious. That's the outworking of glory. You see what I mean? I, I, it might sound a bit pedantic, um, but I just throw that one in. The picture there of the Lord Jesus Christ as being the one who's gone before and the one who's perfect is there and is in, gives us the means. If we talk about the implanted word, uh, the, the word that takes root in our souls, it enables our souls to be alive. How important is that? And we look at Christ for guidance and direction. And then we, go, we say, go on to in chapter 4, it talks about the Holy Spirit is indwelling us. And again, we all know that, though, don't we? I'm not saying anything new. But it goes back to looking in the mirror is that what James was saying is that he wants us to see these things and he wants us to understand it. That if 
we understand what comes from God. If we understand what the Lord of glory is and how he affects our lives and who is within us, motivating us and being a witness for us, then it affects our attitude to our Christian lives. And it's not just a law that we have to command or, or follow. It becomes the law of liberty where we are doing something motivated because we want to do it to please our Father in heaven. We want to do it because when we look at the glory of Christ, the risen glory of Christ, and compare it with the flesh, with the worldly opportunities and things that we can have in this world, we need to be able to compare and side and see the glory of Christ and think, what is that in comparison with what the world provides? And this is what James goes on to talk about when it comes to um, not holding favoritism to the rich and the poor. He's using this analogy. We have all the elements that we need to live in obedience to God. And again, this is a sobering thought for us, is that, I think I said this last week, but I'll repeat myself, that we sometimes fall into the, the trap, if you like, of saying, well, I'm not as good as this other guy or other woman. Uh, they are more knowledgeable than me. Uh, they are more Christ-like. I'll sit in the corner and let them do the things that you've done. That's a cop-out because we all who have accepted Christ as our saviour receive the divine uh, attention of God in the implanted word. And he implants in our soul the opportunity and the means for us to respond in the way that he wants. That doesn't mean you we're all going to respond the same way. But he gives us the means to respond the way he wants. And he gives us the ability to understand the word. There is no excuse for us not to understand the word. That doesn't mean to say you don't read, can't read something and think, I don't understand that. He's given us the ability to understand it. So if we don't understand it, you don't pack, shut the book and chuck it away. Say, I don't understand it. Is that you go to God and say, I don't understand it. And the indwelling Holy Spirit, the implanted word, the example of Christ and the appreciation of the great glory of Christ enables us for our eyes to be opened, our spiritual eyes to be opened. That God will reveal these things because he says he will. God is the giver of all good things. An example of that was, I think, the, the woman of the well, the Samaritan woman. If you remember that she was a woman who the Lord says of her that she'd had five husbands and the one she now had wasn't her husband. She was a woman who was striving after satisfaction in this world. 
and she obviously wasn't getting it. Um, we can, we're not told an awful lot about this woman, but one thing is very clear, that the Lord Jesus Christ was able to identify immediately that woman as somebody who was in need, who had received things in her life that did not satisfy her, and he immediately homed in and said, what you need is living water. And uh, whether she meant to or, or whether she was just toying <laughs> with the Lord and claiming that she didn't understand what he meant and that she was still thinking of actual water, um, the point was made eventually to her very clearly that what she receives from on high, what she received from the Lord was something that would be everlasting something that would quench her thirst. Her thirst for what? She's wanting something that satisfies her. This is where I think, you know, we need to be asking ourselves the same question, is that what is it that we want from life that satisfies us? You know, we, as Christians, we might be very blandly sort of answer that by saying, well, yeah, you need Christ. Oh yes, yes, we've got the Holy Spirit within us, yes. And it's good to be well-pleasing to God the Father. But what does that look like? How do you feel about that? If your works, whatever they are, your life, your Christian life to God is not satisfying, then there's something wrong. Because what God gives satisfies. As the Lord Jesus said to the woman at the well, what he gives will satisfy her if she takes it, if she receives it. And I think this is where we need to be again come back to the mirror and look in there. Why are we doing these things? What is it that motivates us to come to this hall? What is it that motivates us to get down on our knees and pray? Is it because it's, well, I'll usually do it at this time and uh, I can fit it in before something comes on the telly? You know, these are all things that are personal and they are things that I think James here is saying, question it, look at it, understand it, so that the outcome is you're able to receive the, the things of importance from God and that they should satisfy are they satisfying? Are you satisfied as a Christian? Am I satisfied as a Christian? Am I satisfied with what I'm doing or what I'm not doing? Uh, is there still too much fleshly stuff in my life that's constantly causing uh, me to be warring all the time? The Lord Jesus Christ, of course, is the perfect example and when he presented himself to the kings of this world, they never saw any glory. They, they never saw him as anything of any worth. And that, that's important because, again, we, you look at your own life. Uh, I look at my own life and think, am I influenced by the guy who comes in in a nice crisp suit who's just rolled up in a big car? who seems to be very successful. Am I influenced by that? This world we live in 
probably makes the, that answer yes. Because that is what we are constantly bombarded with, is that worldly success is something to be lauded, that you strive after worldly success, whether it be in business or pleasure or whatever, that you aim to try and satisfy yourself with that. When we keep, and we keep saying this, but again, it's, it's getting it into perspective and how it affects our own lives, is that you look at the Lord Jesus Christ standing before Pilate. What did, the, what did Pilate see? What did the king, King Herod, see when they looked at Christ? They saw somebody of no worth. They saw somebody of no glory. Of, in fact, dismissed. Yeah, kill him. Doesn't matter. Get rid of him. That's the man that we follow. And of course, what James is saying, well, it's a, it's a little bit like the guy that comes into your hall and he's, he doesn't look on the outward appearance as anybody of any success. Do we act the same way? Do we discard him as of no worth? Rather than, what is it that the Lord sees? And of course, Christ is the ultimate example. People looked at Christ and they saw nothing. We're looking at Christ that we did this morning in the same way we see through that the outward appearance because we see the man that saved us we see the man that bore our sin we see the man that we're trying to follow but he's a man that had nothing when it came to the dividing his wealth all it was he had a coat that was it and how do we align ourselves to that and how we respond in the manner of the man coming into our hall James is saying be very careful here that, that we don't show favouritism because we then move on to what is the reason for that and should we be concerned about our attitude to this to the world etc because if we are not clothed in the worth of Christ, is there a time coming that if we don't show mercy, and this is where mercy comes in in the end of this, as to what do you think mercy means? If we don't show mercy, then mercy will not be shown to us at the judgment seat. What is that going to look like? You know, we are going to stand at the judgment seat of Christ, and if we have not shown mercy, then mercy will not be shown to us. And what I've just said is kind of scary. <laughs> because all of a sudden you think, hang on a minute. I thought I was saved. I'm saved for eternity. I'm going to heaven. Is that not it? Is that not the big thing? Well, we can discard this judgment seat and say, well, yes, that, that might be it. Because... We are going to have our souls looked at and scrutinized at the judgment seat of Christ. The word judgment, you tend to think, well, is that punishment being meted out? And of course, at the judgment seat of Christ, it's not punishment. We will not be punished for our sins because the Lord Jesus Christ bore them and the Lord God in heaven will remember them no more. But the judgment seat of Christ is 
where our souls are presented before the Lord and it's what the works that we have done for him that's going to be made evident by fire and the gold, silver, costly stones will survive and the wood, hay and stubble which is all the stuff that we did for ourselves for our own pleasure in this will burn up and that judgment if you like is what's left that's what you take into heaven with you now I don't really know what that looks like I don't know what that's going to look like but I do know when you read this that if we don't show mercy and that means if we're not loving kindness to each other if we are not showing forth a Christ-like life and a Christ-like spirit in our Christian lives then we are not going to gain from the judgment seat of Christ. Now that to me is a big deal. I don't know how you feel about it because I think this is something that tends to get discarded a little bit. You know, I'm going to heaven anyway. I'm going to get in the doors because I accepted Christ as my saviour. The judgment seat doesn't really bother me. I would just really maybe plant the seed of doubt I think you need to look at that I certainly need to look at that a bit more because if I don't show mercy I'm not going to receive mercy at the judgment seat of Christ and that to me is a shame a sadness that there's a big difference between the person like the thief on the cross who gets saved at the last minute of his life and they'll have nothing He'll get in, if you like, to heaven by the skin of his teeth compared to the person who gives their life for Christ. There's got to be a difference, hasn't there? That would not be fair otherwise. So therefore, we've got to be looking at this. And it's not the outcome, as James is saying, is not, well, I've got to do this or I lose points is that it should come from the heart. It should come from a love for Christ, a desire to have a special relationship. You know, James, again, we're not 100% sure that the James that we are talking about here was the brother of Christ. But I think most people think he was, and he was the one that wrote this book. There's also a James referred to in the 1 Corinthians 15 when it talked about after the Lord died and was raised again that he appeared to James. Now James was somebody who we, we also read uh, in, in John chapter 7 that, I, that the brother of Christ was somebody who had, was a disbeliever. Now James, the brother of Christ, didn't believe when the Lord Jesus Christ was here on this earth he didn't believe in him if it's the same James that the Lord appeared to after his resurrection you see a transformation that must have taken place because of a visitation and he must have had a peculiar sense of the mercy of Christ because he I don't know what he was like. Again, we can maybe uh, speculate a little bit that maybe as the brother of Christ, 
he was not very helpful. He was maybe condemning uh, of the life of the Lord. He was critical. And there's evidence of that a little bit. And maybe that was the case until the Lord Jesus Christ appears to him as the glorious Lord. And he's transformed. And maybe that then influenced greatly James's attitude to mercy. Because he recognised if it hadn't been for the visitation, then James wouldn't have been where he was. He wouldn't have been able to read or write this book. We've got to look at this ourselves and think that we're no different. If it hadn't been for the visitation of the Lord Jesus Christ in our life, we would be nothing either. We would have no future. And again, we keep coming back to the mirror, look in the mirror and think, if it hadn't been that you were chosen, if it hadn't been that the Lord God in heaven decided that you, David King, I'm calling you. If he hadn't done that, where would I be? What future would I have? It was eternal damnation. And that's got to be real in my life. As I suggest, it has to be real in your life. It's just like James recognising the mercy of Almighty God. We need to do that daily. Recognising the mercy that we have been chosen. And we don't deserve it. And if we don't get to the root cause of that, again coming back to the implanted word and have that desire to work out our own salvation, that doesn't mean work, work to get saved. It does not mean that. It means work it out in your head. Work it out and understand it. Understand what you have done, which is absolutely nothing, <laughs> and therefore what Christ has done for you. And that then explodes in your head and in your heart to the point when suddenly I want to give my life in a Christian attitude, a Christian discipleship. Therefore, that takes priority over the things that this world can give. And therefore, my priorities need to change. Just in closing, Matthew 7 talks about, of course, looking at the the beam or the plank in your own eye before removing the speck of dust from your neighbour's eye. That sums it up in many ways, is that if you don't see the beam in your own eye, because you're not looking in the mirror and you're not seeing the real David King and the sinful man that has been brought out of that to live for him, if you don't see that, then obviously you're not, you're just going to be critical of others and you're going to be going down a pathway that is contrary to the will of God. We'll leave it there. Shall we pray?